Let's turn our Bibles to the second chapter of Philippians, okay? And, uh, and we'll read from 1 down to 16a, the first part of the verse. Of course, I'm not going to be preaching verse for verse, <laughs> but maybe. We'll see. I will read it to you. You can follow along in your Bibles. I'm reading from the NIV, the New International Standard Bible, the version, did I say standard? The New International Version. This is mine from the 1990s. Okay, uh, chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort with his love or from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one, being of in one spirit and in one mind and purpose. Do not or do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be something, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. Good purpose, Lord. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out to the word of life or hold out the word of life. Amen. Amen. I... It's like me beating the same old drum. I actually remember Don has, I have it marked in my Bible here, Don has preached these texts a long, long time ago, many years ago. I don't know how long, I don't have the date written down, but uh, I have Don's notes in my, in my margins. And I'm not going to preach Don's notes. <laughs> but uh, I think it's very important for us to be reminded of these things. And as I have been going through my own journey with the Lord um, over the last couple of months, um, in my own private reflections, I have actually reflected upon God's words to us in Philippians. And 
these ones in particular have spoken to my own soul. And again, though I know these things, it's very important for me to be reminded. It's like the Spirit giving you a poke and, and bringing your focus back to those things that are really important. Now, when Paul is speaking to the Philippians, now we all remember who the Philippians were, the Philippian church. It started from, the church plant there started from, remember Paul was imprisoned. He had cast out that spirit from that little girl in the marketplace. And the owners complained. He got arrested, beaten, enslaved, imprisoned. Uh, tradition says that he was hanging upside down by his feet in the prison. And in that prison, while hanging upside down by his feet, chained upside down, he was singing and they were rejoicing. And around midnight or in the, in the middle of the night, uh, an earthquake happens and the jail is broken open. And Paul and his compatriots are released but they don't flee the jail. The jailer comes. He says, oh no, he's about to kill himself because he would have been held liable. Uh, him and his family would have been murdered if, if the um, people had, had fled the jail. And he says, Paul says, don't worry, we're still here. Paul preaches the gospel to the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer and his family then receive Christ as their savior. Paul baptizes them and they become members of the first church in Philippi. That's a bit of a dramatic church plant right there. And so Paul is communicating with these particular people and he's talking with them. And here in this first in this text, he says um, in a very tender way, in a very nice way, He's, uh, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship from the Spirit, any, with any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. He says these things, not saying, just in case you don't have them. It's a way of speaking, saying, you have these things. You are um, united with Christ. You are comforted by his love, and you do have... Um, fellowship with his spirit. You do have tenderness and compassion. They were living in these things and he's pointing them out. You who have these things, you who are living this life, you who are believers, it's not like they were walking in disobedience. It's not that they were in any way, shape or form being bad to one another. Yes, we do know, and I have it in Don's notes here on my court, that there was a schism in the church. There were two older ladies, we believe, because of their names, who were not getting on. And though they had been co-workers together with Paul at some point, now they had fallen out and it was causing a difficulty within the church. And Paul is addressing that. Now he addresses it clearly later on, but here in this point he's saying we're all Christians. And therefore he's pointing these things out and his desire for them, which is the Holy Spirit's desire for them. And we would say, it's the Holy Spirit's desire for all churches everywhere. That they would be like-minded, having the same love, being of one in spirit and in purpose. It is the Holy Spirit's desire that we as a church be like-minded. That we share the same desire that we share the same love. Not that someone's over there or someone's over here. 
there are a few of us in this congregation who play football. I don't play football, you can tell. And if you have a team of football-y people, I had to watch football on the, on the TV because Sarah was watching the female football team. I thought there was nothing worse than male football, and I have discovered female football is even worse than male football. <laughs> Thank God she's out there. Um, but if you have a team, all the people in the team have to be working from the same playbook. You can't have a divided team. You can't have somebody, somebody on the team thinking that they themselves are the star and not listening to what the coach has to say. You can't have half the team off here and half the team off there. Everyone has to be working towards the same goal, as in, in football, of course, it is to make a goal or to defend from the other team making a goal. And it is the Holy Spirit's desire that churches, that we as Christians should share the same goals, have the same mind frame, have the same goals, that we are Kept together by the same love. A love for Christ and our love for each other. Now again, we do understand that the ancient world's concept of love is not like ours today. We think of affection. I say love, you think affection. Uh, A warm, fuzzy feeling towards someone. I love you. When we have Americans here, you know, they ask, I love you all so much. And it's a bit like, ugh, ugh. They do, I just, uh, you know. The ancient world didn't have this glib, meaningless word love. When they said love, they meant a commitment to someone else's benefit. I am committed to your well-being. An act of love or a commitment to love wasn't dictated by how I felt about you. It was dictated by the commitment I have towards you. It was without emotion. It was without any kind of, ah, I love you and I make decisions that are for your best. And that's what he's calling the church to, to supersede their love has to supersede their personal feelings indeed their love has to dictate to their feelings in our world we think or in our generation our world in which we live today civilization it is if my emotions dictate my love to you love, affection, then I am committed. But I'm only committed to you for as long as I feel something towards you. But in the kingdom of God, it is not to be that way. Our love dictates our feelings, not our feelings dictating our love. Again, don't think of love as a feeling. Think of it as a commitment, a promise, an oath, a contract that you have made. That you are a part of. I love you. Not that I am affectionate towards you. Now again we don't want to be an affectionate church here. Okay. I'm an Irishman. I like my hugs. I'm I'm an overwhelming gushy kind of guy. 
couldn't do without that. But that doesn't dictate how my commitment is to you. And that's what the Spirit is saying here. He's calling them to a deep commitment towards each one's benefit. And he goes on to say that. He explains in verse 3 what he means about love. Do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. human nature right there isn't it that we do what's best for me what's best for mine I'm planning for my future here think of the Joel Osteen Christianity with their faces and their books and their paraphernalia that they just kind of gather in for themselves in the book of Jude or the letter of Jude at the back we're warned about Men who will come and try and make merchandise. They will try and milk the church for all the money that they can get out of it. But among us, it should not be so. We are commanded here, and I like this. It's not a suggestion. It's not like, you know, if I can give you any advice, this will be my advice towards you. You can take it or leave it. You know, you can close your ears at this point. This is just Kyle speaking. It's not really, or Paul speaking. It's not God speaking. No, it's God speaking. It is the essence of what divine love looks like. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing for the sake that will make you look good. Or it will put you in a position of authority or power where you're able to decide over things or over the the finances of the church please someone else take the finances of the church we are to refrain from that and then he goes on to the positive but in humility consider others better than yourself that's so hard for us to do so hard for us to do it's not saying that, that we should look at ourselves as if we're bad He's not saying consider yourself worthless. He's not saying consider yourself the least of all people. Which we here in Finland, we have a tendency to do, don't we? The yantila kind of thing. That, that where we put ourselves down and no, we put people up by putting ourselves down. By speaking negative about ourselves. By considering ourselves worthless. But he's not saying that in the text. He's not. He's not saying you must belittle your self-worth in order to enlarge somebody else's. You must think of yourself as useless and worthless and everybody's better than you. It's the idea of that, and he goes on here. That you are seeking to bless others. Not that you are worthless. But rather that you value others more than you value yourself. You can still love yourself. That's perfectly okay. But in that love that you have for yourself. You must then also love those who are around you. Indeed those of the brotherhood. Of the family of God. Humility. It's a 
really hard concept. Very difficult for us in, not Spurgeon, um, Whitfield. In Whitfield's biography, there's a, a chapter where in, that goes through his, his um, diaries, his journals, his dog book. And God has been using Whitfield in powerful ways as an as a evangelist. And revivals have been happening. And many people have been coming to faith. And then Whitfield goes through a crisis where he discovers that, that the humility that he has clothed himself in, he regards it as false humility. As a humility that, that is not true and real. That it's more to do with <clears throat> his lack of self-confidence. It's got more to do with um, that in a human sense. His own struggles internally. And he's not true humility in the sense that he recognizes and knows that what's happening is God's work. And there is the danger there of, of us mistaking our own human instabilities, our own lack of self-confidence as humility. Where we're... We are clothed in fear or self-loathing and we call it humility. And that's not what humility is. Humility isn't where you flail yourself like the Roman Catholics do to show God how humble you are. It's you being you and you going beyond your normal capabilities. Indeed, he goes on later on in this text to explain to us what humility truly looks like. Each, each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That we're always caring for one another. We're always looking out for one another. We're always involved with one another. There is the idea here of common support. As you're looking out for me, I'm looking out for you. It's not that you're carrying all the weight in the congregation. It's not like one person like Atlas holding up the earth. This is a network, like a, a finely woven spindle net. Where as you're holding me, I am holding you. And as we're holding each other, somebody else is holding us up. And we're holding them up. And we're intertwined and we're supporting one another it's not again that one person doing all the work he's not saying oh Kyle you're the pastor and you're called to do this and the rest of us just enjoy the benefits of it we support one another he's talking to the congregation not to an individual all of us are to look out for each other in the kingdom of God and well, again, we have seen this in our own congregation so many times. You know, there are those among us who have spoken quietly to other people and got other people jobs, looked out for their interests. There are those of us in the congregation, God has done this, and we are, there have been needs, and people have come along and supported and strengthened. 
We have that activeness. And I'm sure the Philippians had as well. But they had to be reminded. They had to be pulled back into this understanding. And then in verse 5, which I think is the key verse of the entire chapter. Your attitude as an individual and as a congregation. Remember, he's not just talking to the person. He's talking to the people. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Church, could we say, dare we say, that our attitude is the same as Jesus Christ? We are to be as Jesus Christ was. Your attitude is the same, should be the same as What is he talking about? Humility. And he's going to show you now what true humility looks like. Again, we're not talking about lack of self-confidence or personality type. There are some of us that are a little bit more this. A little bit more free and bold and foolish. And then there are others who are a little bit more like... Quiet and thoughtful and reserved and sensible. We're not talking about personality type. Humility, like love, isn't an emotion. It's not a natural characteristic. It's something that you must put on yourself. Humility is defined by your actions. Indeed, Your actions are the demonstration of your humility. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. Christ's attitude was this, who by the the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus had full right, of course, to to be worshipped and to be... To force everyone to worship him. Everyone to acknowledge him. He is God. It is his desert. Everyone deserve, or he deserves to be worshipped. It is our duty as human beings. And yet when he came onto earth. In his incarnation. He did not come as the conquering hero, as the the white knight, the golden hero, like this glittering, gorgeous, attractive to the eye kind of person. Indeed, the Bible says that he was acquainted with suffering. No, acquainted with... uh, Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus Christ when he came, did not come in such a way as to bully his way into the hearts and minds of people. He did not come in such a way as to dictate and to force. The Bible tells us that even though he deserved everything, he presented himself in such a way that he got nothing. Nothing came as the least of the least. Now there's a challenge for you. If the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords can come and be among us, and as the Bible says here in my my translation, 
that he came and made himself nothing. How much more of a challenge then is that for us? That we would set ourselves up as something, as someone important, someone crucial, someone who everyone else has to serve? Or you're the one who knows what's right? Everybody else is wrong, I'm right. I'm an Irishman, I struggle from that. I'm a man, struggle from that. We need to be Christ-like in our mind, clothed with humility, not seeking our own benefit, not seeking what we want, not trying to make our kingdom come on earth, but rather to be dedicated to loving one another, dedicated to each other's good, in order that we might be Christ-minded. How do we know that you're Christ-minded? How do we know that you have a holy attitude? That you're going on with God? It is your commitment to one another. It is the fact that you don't raise yourself up, puff yourself up, but rather that there you are, quietly in the background, doing what needs to be done and being consistent. Jesus didn't strive after popularity, power, but rather he did the very opposite. And that is so anti-human, isn't it? It's against our nature. All of us seek our own good. It's, It's what we do. You know, that's natural. And we're not talking about that we should become stoics and reject all things and climb up a mountain and sit there and just wait for God to come. You know, grow long beards. Look like Metzka. You know, be wild, man. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are dedicated to the community of God. Not because they are that way not because the people that we are special or that's just your kind of personality it's not about your personality it's not about your emotion it's about being christ-minded and christ-minded is that he was dedicated to the good of his people it continues here Uh, Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Again, there's so much packed in there, but I want to focus in on on the servant attitude. Taking the very nature of a servant. He took upon himself. He chose to walk in that lifestyle. It wasn't that he was a servant, though through his act of servanthood he became one. But it wasn't his profession. It wasn't who he was. He's a king. He's the king of kings. Then you think of the world kings, leaders in our world. Think of Putin. Think of Barack Obama, Al Bari, or or. 
What's the other guy's name? The mad one who's orange. Uh, Trump. You know, as much as I enjoy Donald Trump, he's orange. Um, could you imagine them in themselves taking on the form of a servant? Washing the feet, perhaps? The smooth stiff, the stinky, smelly feet of the least of their cabinets, their servants, you know? I can't imagine that. I can't imagine Putin or Barack Obama or Clinton or Trump. The world leaders don't do that. But yet here is the the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He created the universe and holds all things together by the power of his word. And he has taken upon himself the nature of a servant. And this is the the attitude, the, the mind frame that you are to have. We look at Christ and say, oh, wow. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and will rule for eternity, for eternity, eternity. Eternity is a long time. And yet he came and served me and is still serving me. And I am benefiting because of his actions. That's amazing. Wow. That should blow your mind if you think about it. The concept is crazy. How can that be? But then it goes further than just him serving us. We then are to serve him as he serves us. Lord, how can that be? I am oh so selfish. I have far too many other concerns. Those people annoy me, Lord. How can I serve them? They're annoying. Christ just says, as I serve you. How annoying do you think I find you, Kai? You know, my wife who loves me more than any other human being in the world finds me exceedingly annoying. How much more should Christ find me annoying? He knows all things about me. Oh, and I am called to love. You are called to love. To act in such a way that it is the benefit for all of his people. For all of the world. This is the nature of Christ. To take upon himself the servant's nature. To serve in whatever way he can. Now we all have different skills, abilities, talents. Some of us serve in other ways. But we're all called to be concerned for one another, to carry one another, to pray for one another. The most basic of all concerns is to lift one another up in prayer, but then also to be involved in however way you can. However way the Lord opens up a door for you to be able to serve, then to show his love by you. Giving your life for the brethren. And in verse 8. And being found in the likeness of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. How humble must you be? How obedient must you be? Let's consider Christ. Our photo build. Our example. He who set the standard. Our master. We who are his disciples and must follow in his footsteps. We must emulate his life. 
How much must you give? How much humility must you show? Well, our master, well, he was obedient unto death. Wow. And it wasn't a great and mighty death. It wasn't a heroic death. In Ireland, we love to Irish mythology. You have your Kalavala Vala, whatever it's called, you know, that thing. You know, that made-up story in the 1800s, whenever it made it up. In Ireland, we have real myths that last for, like, they're a thousand years old, okay? And in our mythologies, in our creation stories, in our Thor and all these other people, we don't have Thor, we have other people, but those kind of stories from the Bronze Age, uh, all of our heroes die. <laughs> all, of our, all of our heroes have tragic, triumphant death where they're standing against thousands of foes and dragons and giants and whatever else. And there's this small teenage boy with a, a, a spear made out of a Hollywood and he's been fighting and, and winning and, and then he's mortally injured but he then ties himself to a stone and that stone still exists in Ireland today. And he ties himself to the stone and he can't stand anymore. And as the enemies are coming, he's still fighting with his piece of wood and he's killing them all. And then he dies. And the enemies, even the the barbarians at the gates, they all stand and go, what an amazing death. And everybody's like, wow. We love, in Ireland, we love our our tragic heroes who stand against, you can understand why the IRA fought against the, the British for, and why the Irish have been fighting for 800 years against the British. Because we, we, we love this, you know, the small taking on the mighty and the mighty crushing and killing the small. But that's wonderful and triumphant. And we, 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 we make heroes out of those men. Our Lord Jesus Christ didn't die a heroic death. And we as Christians, we love to, we love to romanticize it. We love to, to lift them up and say, oh, how glorious, how wonderful. In Christ's day, it was utterly despised. It was, it was like, to say it, you would get a bad taste in your mouth. Like, it was horrific. It was shameful and shocking. It would be a test of your commitment To be able to stand together with him and say, yes, I'm with Christ. Him who was crucified. He died. He died. But not only did he die, he was crucified. That was shameful and shocking. And yet Jesus, in his humility, allowed it to happen. He accepted the will of God and gave himself on our behalf. That is the depths of his humility. That he would take upon himself the humiliation of the cross. Of the stigma. People pointing. People saying bad things. People never really truly trusting or accepting or joking. Scoffing, mocking. Yet Jesus endured the cross. We, 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 have, we have preached several times now through the crucifixion. We saw the things that he endured. Remember the pulling of the beard, the 
They put a bag around Jesus' head and hit him in the face. If you're a prophet who prophesy, tell us who hit you. Do a magic trick. What's my name? Boom. And they mocked him and they humiliated him. And yet, in his humility, he accepted it. And he endured it. In his obedience, he went a whole way. That's the mind frame. That's the attitude that you and I are called to have. We are to walk in this. As Jesus Christ endured and did these things, beloved, you and I are to endure and to walk in these things. How much must you give? How much must you committed, be committed to one another? My beloved, not one of us here, God willing, will ever be crucified. Please, Lord, no. It's just not what happens in Finland today. But we must be committed to one another as a congregation. Not for our sake, but for his sake. As he was, so we are. And we love him by loving one another. And that love is demonstrated in our humility, in the act of serving one another and giving our all for one another. And then it says in verse 9, so we, we've looked at the, the divine command, which was that we should have the mind of Christ. And that the writer goes on and tells us that the, 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 the mind of Christ is that of a servant, one who obeyed, one who did all that they're supposed to do by giving themselves and being clothed in humility. But then he doesn't want to just leave it there and make you feel depressed. Oh, he says, as Christ lowered himself and walked in humility, God then blessed him. And it's therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all other names. Jesus Christ lowered himself down to nothing. And in doing so, God raised him up and exalted him. So much so that every knee, every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow before him. All to the glory of the Father. Now beloved, as we lower ourselves, as we humble ourselves, let us not think that God will just treat us like dog poo on the shoe. Oh! But God sees and remembers and knows and will bless and will reward those who for the sake of Christ allure themselves, who clothe themselves in humility and equip themselves with the mind of Christ. God will not forget. Think of Herod. We all know Herod and his many sons, the many sons of Herod. A man who strived after power all his life. He, he, he worked hard. If you know the life, life of Herod, I'm not going to do history lessons here. But he was, he was a very, very hardworking man. A genius. Very clever beyond modern understandings of clever. He was like a bit of a renaissance man. He was a military guy. He was an architect. He was an agriculturalist. He was one of these, a bit of a doctor. 
Bonnie's one man could do a little bit of everything and became super, super successful. Friend of Caesar and all these other things. Amazing. Yet for all of his self-work and building up his own kingdom, where is he today, 2,000 years later? Uh, Where is the cult of Herod? Where are his monuments and his temples? He built all these really successful things. They're ruins. Dust. There's nothing left. Where are the children of Herod? That's a whole story there. Wow. They were very wicked people. And they all died, mostly died terrible deaths. They're gone. For all of that man's self-interest and selfish ambition, they're gone. Yet Christ and those who followed him, their legacy still stands, more richer today than ever before. Think of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, who wrote 47% of the Bible that we have today. His legacy stands for, for eternity. The Lord used him. Here's a man who gives everything and a little bit more for the kingdom. Yet God honored him. Beloved, let us not be so naive in thinking that God does not honor those who honor him. And do not think that in giving your all you receive nothing in return. The writer here reminds us that God cannot be outgiven. And God rewards those who come to him in faith. Jesus Christ is highly exalted and lifted up. And then verse 12, he says here, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but in, now much more in my absence, continue to work your salvation out with fear and trembling. He's reminding them, look, I know that you have done these things and I know that you are doing them, but I want to encourage you to keep doing them. To do them with an even greater sense of duty. Fear and trembling. Working out your own salvation doesn't mean that you are somehow in some way trying to gain salvation or earn it or make it happen or be more deserving. It's taking it with extreme seriousness. Taking it, the, the, the idea of living for God with the, the highest seriousness that you can. Knowing that you're serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Not fear and trembling because of the people around you, but because God's eyes are upon you and you want to do it out of a sincere heart. Not out of selfish ambition, not out of self. As you have done and as you're doing, so continue to do, but even more so. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. And I love this because he reminds them, it's not you who does these things. Like you and I might serve one another, but it is God in you doing these things. We consider the people of the world. I, I consider the people of the world. And uh, a certain lady I, I talked to not so long ago, 
And um, we were talking about things, Christian things. And the lady said to me, but how can you get through those things? How, how can this happen in your life and yet here are you? And not only that, you don't have any bad feelings towards people. Or that you're able to forgive people. I'm, also, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I obey his word and I walk in his ways and keep his requirements. I recognize that my own judgments are faulty. And that I must submit to how Christ has dictated that I do things. And in doing that, they will work out. And she couldn't get her head around it. How can you forgive? How can you let these things go? Because it is not me. It is Christ in me who enables me. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength, the Bible says. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, the Bible says. And we are enabled and able to do these things, to serve one another, to love one another, to be dedicated and committed to one another. Not because we're good people. Not because we're hardworking and stubborn people. Not because we're a doormat. But because the Spirit of Christ, that humble Spirit is within us. And we are able. So beloved, as you serve one another, understand that it is God who enables you. And it is God who is doing these things through you. How do I know that God loves me? It's not because I have a warm, fuzzy feeling inside me. Ah, you know, I'm one of these fools that goes out into the forest and prays by myself. You know, I'll find a little stub or a, a stone pile. Don knows all my secret places. And go out into the forest and I'll sit there and I'll talk with God. I really hope nobody ever sees me in a night by myself. Who's that Irishman sitting on that stub talking to himself? Um... And I'm not looking for this mystical feeling of, of love. Well, that would be great. Like, but it's not that. How do I know in my day and daily life that Christ loves me? It is the love shown to me by the people of God. That's where the warm fuzzy feeling comes. Because I know that God loves me. Because he has put these people in my life to care for me and to keep me. To be concerned for me. Who pray for me. So that when I have a need. When I fall down. When I falter. They are there for me. And they are the provision of God for me. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God works in us and through us. And then it says in verse 14. Which is the hardest verse in all the Bible. Do everything without complaining and arguing. I think that we should have that bubble verse written somewhere in the church somewhere. Up on a big sign. Do all things. It's not a suggestion, beloved. It's not a, if you can. It's a commandment. Do not kill. That's a commandment. Do everything without complaining or arguing is a commandment. Now you can be unhappy and you can have different opinions. That's perfectly fine and acceptable and great. 
because we don't always know what's best. And we need, in a multitude of voices, there is wisdom, the Bible says. But we are not allowed to be put out. Just because I decide not to do something that you want to do, you don't get to be angry at me. Or, unless it's, of course, selfishly on my part. You don't get to then go around the rest of the people in church saying bad things about me because you're annoyed with me. You're not allowed to, it's my football and I'm going home. How many times have we seen that in the church, you know? From people who have played musical instruments to whatever else and they've tried to force because they, they haven't been able to get what they wanted and they've tried to force their will in church. But the Bible says that we're to do everything without complaining. Complaining, I think, is one of the most difficult things. Not to complain, sorry, I think it's one of the most difficult things to do. Why do I have to do this? I mean, why, why am I the one who has to do this? And then the Lord says, shut up, God. <laughs> do all things without complaining. Human nature is that we complain. Husbands and wives, truly know this. Children and their parents. I, I say to my kids, go wash the dishes. Why do I have to wash the it's your day, son. Your name's on. Why things I always have to do? But my kids have one day a week that they have to clean the dishes. Put them in. in the, and apparently it's the hardest thing in all the world. Even though they all agreed to that system. Um, they can do nothing without complaining and arguing. That's how it works in my household. Because they're unregenerated. And they're selfish. They're little sinners. And they're coming into their own. And uh, they want to be served without having to serve. They are little... There's an education on what sinfulness looks like by examining my children. <sighs> Beloved, it should not be so in the church. It should not be so within the church. Why? So that we might become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. By watching our tongues, guarding our hearts, by checking our egos, by being committed to loving one another in our congregation and the church of God throughout all the world. By doing so, by functioning in this way, by continuing to function in this way and being even more committed to it. We will be seen to be blameless and pure children of God in this generation. Wouldn't that be awesome? That people would look at us and know that there's something different about us. There's something pure and blameless about us. That they can't find anything. They could scroll through our Facebook trying to look for all the hidden secrets. I think I remember telling us once that we had a, Sarah and I went away on some anniversary thing or something, I can't remember. I think we were in Spain or something. And we had someone look after our children and they, a family stayed in our house. And they were they used to be church members, but they've not left. And, um, and we came back, we went for the weekend, we came back and the man said to me, you know, I have searched your entire house. You have no secrets. I was sorry, what is, yeah, I've went through every cupboard in your house you have no dirty little secrets. And I was like, you did what? <laughs> I searched your house from top to bottom. 
There's nothing secret in you. And, uh, okay, all right. <laughs> what do you say to that? But that's how it should be with our lives. That people examine us and there's nothing small and hidden. Nothing. If they went through our phones, they wouldn't find our browser history is perhaps not what it should be or whatever, whatever. But there is a, a purity about us. Oh, beloved, if we could get a hold of this. The Bible says that we would be seen as stars shining in the universe. We took Emil's Emilia at Christmas time when they were here visiting. Uh, out, we drove way out in the country, like I don't know where, like some country roads, and stopped the car and got out in the middle of night. I think it was like two o'clock in the morning and watched the Northern Lights. The first time she's ever seen the Northern Lights. And they were awesome. They were like waving and blue and green and they were gorgeous and behind them shone all the stars you know because when you when you're far out into the country and it's just darkness like um, you know brother Kaliaki. uh darkness did i say Kaliaki? i'm sorry yeah Kaliyadavi. sorry brother and uh Darkness, but yet the stars in the darkest of the dark, the stars shine the brightest. If you're in the town with the orange lights in Ireland, and you're walking in the streets in Ireland, we have orange street lights. And it's like, it produces a, a, a talk, like a light ceiling, so you can't see the stars. Or you can see the brightest ones. Orion and the Ploy and these other ones. But you can't see all of them. But when you go out into the countryside, into where it's really dark, I mean, like, that dark, and you look up, the stars are vibrant. And the Bible says that, beloved, you and I, as we walk in the humility of Christ, as we are dedicated to the good of one another, that we then will shine doesn't matter how dark the darkness or how deep the unbelief. You and I will be seen. We will stand out. We will be noticed. There will be something breathtaking about that. Again, you stand in the darkness. You look at all those stars. I think Don and I have been praying in some mornings. In the freezing cold darkness of the darkness. And we've been standing out in the forest praying. And as we, we see the satellites going over and shooting stars. And finally the sun comes up over the horizon. Or behind the trees at least. And it's breathtaking. There's something mystical and magical and powerful about those. And the Bible says that you and I. As we walk together with God. As we are dedicated in our commitment to one another as we are clothed in humility as we make the commitment to do all things without arguing or complaining or arguing we stand out as a blameless and pure church as you hold out the word of life beloved as you and I are committed to the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ we stand out. Amen. Let's pray. 
Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. We desire, Lord, to be all the more like you. It's very easy for us to forget. Very easy for us, Lord, to be taken aside and distracted and taken down side avenues, Lord, and to be taken up with trends and issues and church politics and arguments within the body of Christ that have been going on for hundreds of years. But Lord, we do not desire to be like the people of the world. Oh God, we desire to be like Christ. We desire to be clothed in humility. Lord, to have the attitude and the mind of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us this day to be more committed, to be, Lord, committed to excellence in our humility. That we would, Lord, walk in your ways and keep your requirements. The Lord, we would be seen in this world. Lord, that is the desire of our hearts, that you in us would be seen in this world, that your light in us would shine in the darkness, and those around us, Lord, would be taken back by it, that they would be in wonder, and that, Lord, you would draw them to yourself, Lord, first by the example of your Spirit within us, and then also by the power of the Gospel. Oh, Lord, we pray this for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen.